school this morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and check it out. Go over to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Please go in your Bible, Luke chapter 2. I want to thank, want to thank Brother Jerry for doing a wonderful job leading us in our singing. Brother Dave for his wonderful words at the table. Brother Dale for a great prayer. And I want to thank Brother, T Brother Ryan. I almost called you Tom, Ryan. Brother Ryan for reading our scripture reading this morning. In fact, to go along with Ryan's scripture reading, when you go in your Bible to Luke chapter 2 this morning, go over to Luke chapter 2 with me this morning. And I want to read to you some scriptures. I want to read some scriptures from Luke chapter 2, starting with verse number 4. After telling us that these events took place in the days when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome and when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, the Bible says Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of Bethlehem, or to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. What emotions, what emotions went through your body as I read those verses? What emotions ran through your body as Brother Ryan read some similar passages earlier this morning? Did you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Did you feel a little bit weird and nervous and awkward? Did you squirm a little bit in your pew? If so, then no, then no, you're not alone. No, you're not alone in that. For many people who consider themselves to be members of the Lord's church, which is the church of Christ, they get a little uncomfortable whenever verses like this are read around this time of the year. Now, they don't mind these verses being read and considered in July or August or September or even the month of January, but, but, but not in the month of December. Ah, uh, not around this time of the year, especially not on the day after Christmas. I mean, we don't know. We don't know when Jesus was born, right? We don't know exactly when he came into this world. In fact, based on the biblical evidence we have, he probably was not even born in the winter, much less the month of December. There's also no explicit command for God's people to formally celebrate the birth of Jesus. In other words, in the Bible, you're never going to find Christians organizing Christmas concerts and feasts and festivals and pageants. But what you will find Christians doing in the Bible is you will find them taking the Lord's Supper. 
you will find them coming together on the first day of the week to remember and celebrate not the birth of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. That's why we ate the Lord's Supper this morning. You see, because of our culture's erroneous thinking about the birth of Jesus and because we want no part in making man-made traditions a work of the church as members of the Lord's church, we feel a little bit uncomfortable whenever verses like this are read around this time of the year. We feel a little uncomfortable when even the birth of Jesus is brought up around this time of the year. And while I certainly understand and even appreciate some of that kind of thinking, at the same time, I also believe that we should not let our culture's erroneous thinking rob us of timely opportunities that we are given in our culture to talk about the birth of Jesus. That's right. We should never shy away from talking about the birth of Jesus. I say that because as long as this massive world has been in existence, there has never been anything like the birth of Jesus. There's never been anything like the birth of Jesus. Nobody has ever come into the world like Jesus, the birth of Jesus. It's one of the most amazing things that take place in the history of the world. It is one of the most amazing things to read about in the Bible. And one of the reasons why it is amazing is because it was miraculous. Jesus had a miraculous birth. He was born of a what? He was born of a virgin. He was born not through natural means, but through supernatural means, unlike me and you and every other person, Jesus did not come into the world by means of an earthly father and mother coming together in a sexual relationship. Instead, Jesus came into the world by the direct power of God. He was born of a virgin. He's the only person in the history of the world to come into the world in that way. His birth is amazing because it was miraculous. But then secondly, it was amazing because it was announced by angels. Angels announced the birth of Jesus. We read that in Luke chapter two. I'm pretty sure that when you were born, you had various people in your life who announced that information to your close circle of family and friends. But none of us have ever been so special and so vital and so important to the human race that when we came into the world, angels announced it. Angels announced the birth of Jesus. Angels, heavenly hosts, spiritual beings, they told some shepherds in the field that Jesus was born. In fact, beyond making that announcement, the Bible says they celebrated. They praise God. They express great joy that the one who had come into the world to offer spiritual peace to mankind, he is here. The birth of Jesus is amazing because it was miraculous. And because it was announced by angels, but thoroughly it was amazing because it made Satan very mad. It angered the devil. We know it angered the devil because almost immediately after Jesus was born, the devil started using his henchmen to try to destroy him. 
I mean, isn't that exactly what we studied a few classes ago? Matthew chapter 2. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, we learned that while shepherds in the field and while angels celebrated the birth of Jesus, Herod, the king of Judea, he did not. Herod did not celebrate the birth of Jesus. Herod viewed Jesus' birth as a threat to his rule and reign as king of the Jews. In fact, he was so intimidated by the birth of Jesus that he murdered innocent children, innocent baby boys all throughout the land of Bethlehem. Try to get your mind wrapped around that. That's how much Jesus' birth shook up the world. In fact, the number one reason why it shook up the world so much and reason number four as to why his birth is so amazing is because his birth marked the arrival of God. The arrival of God in the flesh. Brother Ryan read that back in Matthew 1. Go back to Matthew 1, verse 21. Matthew 1, verse 21, as an angel was telling Joseph that this woman he's engaged to, her name is Mary. She's pregnant by the power of God. He says in verse 21 of Matthew 1, she shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the, by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. Notice how unlike me and unlike you and unlike any person when they were born, when Jesus was born, he was God. He was God in the flesh. Jesus' birth marked an occasion when God actually came here, God actually came among sinful men. God actually left the realm of eternity. He left the glories of heaven to be born of a woman and live among his creation. Jesus' birth is amazing because it was miraculous. And because it was announced by angels and because it made spiritual forces very angry and because it marked the occasion when God stepped out of heaven. That's what the Bible tells us. That's some of what the Bible tells us about the birth of Jesus. And while all of that is great information that certainly needs to impress us every day of our lives, maybe one question we need to consider this morning is this. Is that all there is to the story? Is that all there is to the story about Jesus? Is there all there is to the story of the gospel? I submit to you that for many people in our culture today, they seem to wish it was. I submit that for many people, when it comes to Jesus, the Christ, all they seem to want is that right there. All they seem to want is him as a baby. All they seem to want is him as a baby and a manger. All they seem to want to do is attend a religious service around this time of the year and hear these facts about the birth of Jesus and then go about their merry little way living however they want to live their lives. So many people fail to realize that only when they go beyond the birth of Jesus do they get the full picture of Jesus. Do they find a Jesus who challenges us? 
and test our love and devotion to God. That's exactly what Jesus does when we go beyond the birth of Jesus and consider his preaching. Point number one has to do with the preaching of Jesus. That's what you find when you go beyond the birth of Jesus. Go in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, please. Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 17. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 17, the Bible says from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where's Jesus at this point in his life? Well, my, my dear friends, at this point in Jesus' life, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. Jesus is no longer a silent child. Jesus is no longer in a position where he's being silent about the standard that God has for people's lives. Instead, by this time, Jesus is a grown man. By this time, Jesus is 30 years old and he's talking. He is preaching. He's preaching the word of God. He's telling people to repent. To change your life, to reform your life, to turn away from sin and start giving your life to God. That's what Jesus is preaching in Matthew chapter four. He's preaching repentance and then go to the next chapter, Matthew five. In Matthew chapter five, you find the most famous sermon, not only in the Bible, but in the history of the world. The Sermon on the Mount. You find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount makes up three chapters, three chapters in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, you know what you find Jesus preaching about? Well, you find him preaching about how it is wrong to slander and say hurtful and ugly things to people whenever, whenever they make us mad. And it is wrong to seek revenge when people do us wrong in our lives and it's wrong to look upon another with lust in our hearts and it's wrong to divorce one's spouse for any other reason than adultery committed on their part. And it is wrong to make vows or promises that we don't intend to keep. And it is wrong, like Brother Andy said this morning, to merely just love those who love us back and hate our enemies. That's the kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the kind of standard he promotes in the Sermon on the Mount. And that standard certainly runs counter to the thinking of our culture. But go to Luke now with me. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9... Please look at verse 23. In Luke 9 and verse 23, Jesus said these words. He says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Denying myself means that I got to be willing to put God's will before my will. It means that I got to be willing to put aside how I want to live, how I want to think, how I want to do to do what God wants me to do. I have to deny myself and I got to take up my cross. The idea of taking up the cross means suffering. The cross meant suffering for Jesus and it means suffering for us. We got to take up the cross daily and we got to follow Jesus. Here Jesus is talking about discipleship. Real discipleship. Not just getting wet. 
but real discipleship, following him with every fiber of our being. That's what Jesus is talking about there. Now go to Luke chapter 17, please. Luke chapter 17. Look at this right here in verse 1. As Jesus talks to his disciples in Luke 17 and verse 1. Jesus says, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on guard, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Did Jesus just say that? I mean, did Jesus, did Jesus really just say that? Did Jesus just say that if people hurt me, if they sin against me, if they gossip about me, if they do things that bring me down and destroy me emotionally, I have to forgive them? I have to forgive them if they repent. Jesus can't mean that. Jesus can't be saying that. Doing that would mean I would have to release the person who hurt me from the offense they committed against me. It means that I would have to really bury the hatchet and move on. It means that I would lose the power that I have over the person who hurt me, and it will be wrong for me to bring up the offense over and over again and rub it in their face whenever they do something that makes me mad. Jesus is telling me to forgive people. I don't like that. I don't like that teaching. I don't like that Jesus. I don't want that Jesus. I want the baby Jesus. I want the Jesus in the manger I want the Jesus who doesn't tell me to repent and live right and forgive people who hurt me. That's how a lot of people think. And our culture today, the question is, what about us? What about me? Well, what about you? Do you want this Jesus? Do you want the Jesus beyond the birth story and the gospel? Do you want the Jesus who preaches? The Jesus who has a concrete moral standard, the Jesus who challenges you, the Jesus who calls you to authentic discipleship, the Jesus who, Jesus who provides the word of God that you and I must obey if we're going to be saved. Do you want that Jesus? I hope you want that Jesus because in John 12, look at John chapter 12, please. In John chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus said these words in John 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Notice how Jesus' words in the gospel are not merely suggestions. They're not merely a bunch of wise sayings designed to to fill up our mental filing cabinets. They're not words that, that are really not a big deal. Instead, they are words that carry eternal consequences. They are words by which we're going to be judged. When we stand before God, they are words that come from somebody 
who has divine authority. They are words that we must receive and obey if we're going to receive eternal life and go to heaven. The preaching of Jesus instructs us on how to live lives that are pleasing to God. And that's something you don't get. That's something I don't get. That's something we don't get when we just stop at the birth story in the gospel. You see, when you go beyond the birth story of Jesus, you're going to find Jesus preaching. And when you go beyond the birth story, you know what else you're going to find? Secondly, you're going to find Jesus taking a firm stance against religious error. You're going to find a Jesus who doesn't shy away from confronting people who are doing things that are outside of the will of God. If you remember, and we're going to study this in, in, in a few days. Remember John chapter 2? Remember John 2, 13 through 17? Remember in John chapter 2, we find Jesus going into the temple in Jerusalem and he sees some corrupt things being done. He, he sees a bunch of people turning his father's house into a place of business. They're selling animals for sacrifices. They're exchanging money. They are corrupting the house of worship, the purposes of the temple. And Jesus, unlike the baby Jesus, the Jesus who doesn't talk, the Jesus who's just in the manger, unlike that Jesus, well, when you get to John 2, you find a Jesus who's a grown man. And he doesn't just sit by and turn the other way when people are promoting sin. He goes to the tables of the money changers and he turns over their tables and he makes a scourge of cords and he drives all those animals out of there and he tells these people, you stop turning my father's house into a place of business. Jesus, Jesus stood up against and stood against corruption being done in the temple. And then remember Matthew 23. Do you remember Matthew 23? A great chapter in the gospel in Matthew 23, verses 13 down to verse 29. In Matthew 23, verses 13 down to verse 29, you find Jesus standing up to the corrupt religious leaders of his day. In fact, in Matthew 23, if you remember, in that chapter, Jesus called these men hypocrites. He called them hypocrites at least seven times in those verses. When he called them hypocrites, he was really calling them frauds. They were religious frauds. They were religious pretenders. They were men who may have seemed very religious and devout on the outside, but on the inside, they were corrupt. In their souls, they were spiritually bankrupt. That's what Jesus told these men to their face. In fact, go in your Bible to Matthew chapter 15, please. I want to show you this in Matthew 15. I told you in the Bible class hour that we were going to, we were going to consider this. We were going to consider this. Matthew 15, verse 1. Look at this right here. Matthew 15, 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break what? They didn't say the word of God. They said the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, I don't care about what your elders say. God said, honor your father and mother and who 
He who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you, it has been given to the poor. Oh, I can't help you, mom. I can't help you, daddy. I've dedicated my money to God. That's the kind of stuff they did. Verse 6, he is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Teaching us doctrines, the precepts, the precepts of men. Once again, we find Jesus exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Once again, we find Jesus exposing the spiritual corruption of these men. Specifically on this occasion, Jesus exposes how they put their man-made rules and their man-made regulations and their man-made traditions on the same level as God's law. God's law said nothing about a person washing their hands before eating bread, but it did say something about honoring your parents. It did say something about helping your parents. It did say something about using your money to help your parents when you are in need. The word of God did teach that, but these men didn't want to do that. They didn't want to obey what the word of God said about honoring their parents. Instead, they tried to find loopholes to get around doing what God told them to do. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. Jesus exposed their religious error. He exposed that they were religious frauds and religious pretenders, and that's why they hated him. That's why they couldn't stand him. That is why they ultimately made it their mission to get rid of him. These men did not want the Jesus who stood up and exposed religious error, the question is, what about, what about you? What about me? Do I want this Jesus? Do I want this aspect of Jesus? Do I want the Jesus who stands, who stands against religious practices? The Jesus who stands against sin, the Jesus who stands against unholy behavior, the Jesus who urges me to keep things in their proper place and avoid abusing the things that God has set aside for spiritual purposes. Do I want that Jesus? Do I want the Jesus who challenges me to check the emphasis that I place on my traditions? Do I want the Jesus who challenges me to avoid putting my traditions and my rules and my regulations that I have for myself on the same level as the word of God? Do I want the Jesus who challenges me to avoid binding things on other Christians where the word of God is silent? Do I want the Jesus who challenges me to avoid Doing things like going to a Christian or saying of a Christian, oh, it's wrong for a Christian to have that tattoo. 
It's wrong for a Christian to have a piercing in their nose. It's wrong for a Christian to have pink hair or purple hair or green hair. It's wrong for a Christian to put up, put up a Christmas tree or decorate their house for the holidays. It's wrong for a Christian woman to wear pants to church or for her to ask a question in a Bible class, do I want the Jesus who challenges me to check the traditions that I come up for myself and avoid binding that stuff on other people? And what about the inclinations I might have to live a life of hypocrisy? Do I want the Jesus who tells me that that kind of lifestyle, that's not going to cut it with God, like he constantly told the scribes and the Pharisees, do I want the Jesus who challenges me to understand that it's not enough for me to come in here with some nice clothes on and sing some songs and say some prayers and take the Lord's Supper and hear a sermon and shake some hands after services, but go, go about my day life living however I want to live? Oh, no, sir, no, ma'am. Jesus says, that's not going to cut it. It's not enough just to come to church on Sunday. Jesus says, I have to strive to be authentic. I got to strive to be the real deal. I got to strive to be faithful to God. I got to strive to live right, to live as a disciple all the time. Only then will I truly please God. Do I want that Jesus? Do I want the Jesus beyond the birth story, the Jesus who preaches? The Jesus who stands against religious error and religious hypocrisy. And thirdly, the Jesus. The Jesus who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Well, you go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is our final point right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 1, please. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. The Apostle Paul said these words. Now I make known to you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you're also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance, but I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, According to the scriptures, notice how while the birth story of Jesus is certainly a big part of the gospel, it is also not an issue of first importance. According to Paul, the birth story is not an issue of first importance. Instead, according to what Paul says, we need to understand that Jesus was born for a very specific purpose. As Brother Dave said this morning, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die and be raised on the third day. Remember when the Bible said in Matthew chapter 1, look back at Matthew 1 and verse 21, please. In Matthew 1 and in verse number 21, the angel said to Joseph that Mary was going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he's going to save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from sins. He understood that clearly when you look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 21. After Jesus promised to build his church, 
In Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. You see, unlike me and you and every other precious baby to be born into this world, the Bible says that Jesus knew that he had been, he had been born for a very specific purpose. He had been born for the purpose of dying. Suffering and dying on the cross for my sins and for your sins. That's what the Bible says is of first importance. And I submit that that information challenges us unlike any other information in the Bible. It challenges us to understand the seriousness of sin. It challenges us to understand that when it comes to sin, sin is serious. Contrary to what our world wants us to believe, sin is serious. It is a big deal. In fact, it is so serious. And it is such a big deal that it cost Jesus life on the cross. The death of Jesus challenges us to understand the seriousness of sins. And it also challenges us to understand why Jesus came into the world. It challenges us to understand that Jesus didn't come into the world to bring world peace. He didn't come into the world to bring peace in the Middle East. He didn't come into the world to make it so we wouldn't have any problems, no trials, no temptations. We can be wealthy and rich and live out our wildest dreams. That's not why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world to die for sins. To be a sin sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled unto God. The death of Jesus challenges us to understand the purpose for Jesus coming into the world. And it also challenges us to understand the truth about ourselves. We need to know the truth about ourselves. And the death of Jesus challenges us to understand that. It challenges us to understand that no matter how good we might think we are. No matter how religious we are, no matter how much we go to church or read our Bibles or pray or give money to help the poor, at the end of the day, you know we are? We're a bunch of sinners who can't save ourselves. At the end of the day, we need Jesus. At the end of the day, we need his blood. We need his saving power because beyond being the baby that's in the manger, Jesus is also the Savior. He's also the Lamb of God. That's what we learn when we go beyond the birth story. The question is, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that this morning? Are you going to accept all the gospel says about Jesus? Are you going to accept the preaching of Jesus? And the sacrifice and the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice? Or are you going to do like so many people do in our culture today, and especially around this time of the year, are you only going to accept the baby Jesus? Are you only going to accept the Jesus in the manger? The Jesus who doesn't talk, who doesn't preach, who doesn't expose sin, who doesn't challenge us, who doesn't challenge us to reform our lives to the will of God? Are you going to accept the Jesus who doesn't tell us what to do to be saved. 
in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Before going to heaven, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. You know, it is a sad thing that the vast majority of religious people don't accept those words from Jesus. They don't accept what he says about true belief. And they certainly don't accept what he says about baptism for the purpose of salvation. The question is, if you're not a Christian this morning, what are you going to do? Are you going to go beyond merely believing in the baby, Jesus? To also obeying the Jesus who tells you to believe and be baptized. If you're a Christian who is not living right, what are you going to do? Are you going to go beyond the birth story and accept what Jesus says about repentance and getting back on the right path? If there's someone here this